This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Chick Radio. This is Counterculture. You are with Marie. My guest this morning is Jody Brunning, sociologist and trustee for Physicians and Scientists for Global Responsibility. You can find them at psgr.org.nz. Good morning, Jody. How are you? Good morning, Marie. Thank you for having me on. This is great to be here. I'm really excited. No, we're excited to have you. Tell us a little bit more about you. I know you've already spoken to our Rodney, but for our listeners at Counterculture, who are you? And tell us a little bit more about your sociology and your really interesting history prior to that degree. Yes, well, my um, I, as you probably will guess, I am Australian. I've been based here since 2007, married into a farming family, and I come from a family, farming family in Australia. My first degree you know, 20 odd years ago was agribusiness. I switched from marketing to agribusiness because I, I wanted to help farmers. And that was a BBiz at Monash University. And I ended up in the wine industry for a long time. Then I sort of, you know, also worked overlapped in, in marketing. And then, you know, I came to New Zealand with young kids, you know, spent a lot of time bringing them up. And then I started, I was always, you know, I'd watched two parents die of cancer in my 20s. And I was really interested in health and nutrition. So I started researching pesticides because that was, you know, so so in the, you know, 2000s was when glyphosate was coming on the radar. So I started researching glyphosate, which of course was controversial because it's such a tool for farmers. And I, I spent a year going down the rabbit holes and looking at um, like the US EPA, how they use science to approve glyphosate and then the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization and the WHO, World Health Organization, they come together for a joint meeting on pesticides. And then I looked at the European Commission, sorry, the European Food and Safety Authority. So those three massive institutions and how they say glyphosate's safe and the science that they look at at that to say it's safe. And the, the 2000s was quite an important time because that's when they were switching from just spraying glyphosate on um, on weeds, for example, before you're um, seeding out a paddock with, you know, new a new crop, new pasture, to spraying on crops to dry dry down the crops to get rid of the weeds to and this was when the GMO the soy the corn the canola all those herbicide tolerant products were coming out and so this was so the studies I was looking at the science I was looking at was sort of the what I would say is the legitimation legalizing spraying on our food of a herbicide that was already back then known to be toxic and so by finding out that it was just industry data, even the WHO, it was the industry picking the science to say it's safe. That was when I sort of looked at that's the model. That's the model for regulation for pesticides in, in all the world. And so this is, you know, this is when I started understanding. And I'd grown up in a very conservative farming, you know, country environment where you're not an activist, you're not that sort of person. And my family still regard me a little bit dubiously today, really. But but that kind of helps me. That scepticism helps me, if you know what I mean. Mm. And um, so in New Zealand, I you know I would go and present to the local local council, region, regional council, Auckland council, and um, and 
you'd find each and every time that you're, well, there's no scientists. You're not a scientist. You're, you're quoting the science and the EPA says it's different. So I started understanding there were hundreds of people throughout New Zealand doing this and we've had now decades of people doing this, going to local councils, saying we don't want it sprayed locally and in our regions. And so, of course, that's a very different paradigm from farmers just using it before they seed out an arable crop, you know, veggies, or they seed out, a, a, you know, cereal crop or, or re, re, um, reapply new pasture. And so that early 2000s meant that, yep, your cattle can, your stock can go on, you know, a week after, you, you know, you can feed your stock sprayed product and you can feed your children you know, the, the herbicide-tolerant corn, soy, canola crops that is in our ultra-processed food. So I sort of realised that I was just another lady, you know, going mm. going up in front of ca- the councils. I was just another nutter. Weren't you, in inverted commas, an expert? You weren't expert enough for them? <laughs> so interestingly, you know, I also so wrote a big, very large paper on that and over that time, I got to know other scientists in New Zealand that um, had been involved, for example, in the, mm. in the National Agency for Research on Cancer decision on that glyphosate was a probable carcinogen. But I started understanding how power moves, you know, how the EPA is immovable. You know, mm. there's an XPG, it's got an XPG's rights and head at the top of it. No one, they're not moving on this. They are locked in. And then I started realising, well, that's connected basically to their the WHO, FAO, so that's a globalist position on what is the safety of glyphosate. So that's when I sort of started thinking, I need to understand about policy, you know, I need to understand how law works, you know, because we need to, because that's called regulatory capture. What we see with the New Zealand EPA is a, the perfect form of, of, of regulatory capture. And so then I, I sort of and then I wrote a, a paper with the, the the Green Party who hated it, you know, really didn't want it to happen because it was, inverted commas, controversial. Uh, but Stephen Browning um, kept pushing that and they said, well, you can only do it if you get a bunch of scientists. And, oh, my word, we got some very high-caliber scientists supporting us. So that paper went out. But, of course, the media did not publish. Mm. The media did not cover that. And then in 2019, just before I started my sociology, my master's, or just about the same time, um, we released between the Soil and Health Association and the PSGR a, a, a paper that I was a primary author of on fresh water and the failure to look at pollution. And we had whoa, 20 to 30 organisations sign up talking about how bad the, the national standards were and how they weren't working because they couldn't actually ensure that we were targeting pollution not a single press release so we released you know Mm. um press releases but not a single second of coverage by the legacy or mainstream media and you know i've had several other cases where i either haven't they won't publish me or they alter things or they turn me from a researcher to an activist so i've seen how that's gamed by the legacy media which is why i support what reality check radio is is attempting to do yeah. and will do um as you know it because we need this so desperately because it's all about democracy it's all about how we protect public health and it's all about how we protect environmental health 
um, without putting that into the, you know, you're an environmentalist hippie bastard, but every fisherman knows that the water is being damaged and harmed and every fisherman understands that we've got to do other stuff, um, but the government doesn't want to go there. No, no. So that actually makes sense in terms of your sociology MA. Is that sort of a really allowed to you to get a more contextualised view of what was going on? And when I saw, because I watched over Easter weekend, The Silenced documentary, and you featured in that. And what I loved about the documentary was your commentary, your bird's eye view commentary on what was unfolding with both our, with Peter Williams and with Anne O'Reilly and the social and governmental aspect of that. And you actually applied a really beautiful understanding, I think, for the layperson. So if somebody wasn't like us who are living and breathing this every day, we came in, watched that documentary, you very clearly and concisely laid that out. And those observations, I think, are really valuable because farmers understand what's going on in terms of soils and crops. No one understands the environment more than a farmer. And I interviewed a farmer last week and around carbon farming and the, and the, the, the destruction of high country land. Yeah, I can see your eyes rolling around that. So these people, they may not have the be expert in inverted commas, but they are actually experts in their own field because they're living it. They have that experiential expertise. They're living it every day. So from a sociology perspective, I wanted to get you on because I, look, I'm just a crude amateur observer of where we are culturally. And there are so many things that interlap and so many themes that come up every single time. I thought you and I could have a really good discussion about some of those themes. So the first thing around is in terms of the current cultural landscape where, I mean, I talk about wokeism and I'm very, very broad, but that in itself has lots of different little ideological facets. Now, you've come up against it from an academic standpoint. So talk me through some of the experiences you've had from uh, your work, like in terms of study and where you've actually seen that in academia. You know, like woke. So, so first of all, the whole the, the the concept of wokeism. Like my family, you know, uh, don't talk about wokeism, and and understand that only a narrow proportion of society are actually ter- using the term woke. You know, so we all sort of wince mm. when we think about that term. You know, because. You know, and as someone very wise said to me, you know, you can never win a culture war. You know, it's a minefield because it's he said and she said. And so so I've kind of stayed away from wokeism, you know, because basically, you know, what I do as a sociologist as I look at different, so I look at patterns and I look at, you know, so I'm looking at regulatory patterns. I'm looking at how we use science as a tool. Um, or how we exclude important forms of science, how we make space for science that is made by certain powerful institutions and how we don't make a space for science that is um, maybe drawing attention to harm and risk, you know. And so what I'm looking at, the science I want to see more of is basic science, is open-ended science, is system Mm. science. Science with a little less as opposed to science with a capital S. Yeah, yeah. And because once we have science that is tightly corralled into what powerful institutions, when I say powerful institutions, I mean universities and corporations and governments. So Mm. when we have science that is managed tightly and that isn't, um, 
isn't subject to broader, you know, expertise, broader peer group um, inclusion, that science becomes technocratic. It becomes very narrow and it becomes, it, it cannot, it, it becomes uninformed because it's only following one agenda. So it becomes an ideology. So we think about ideology in terms of, a you know, a cult or something like that. It, it really does because... Mm you know, controversial challenges won't go against that because every single scientist knows when they're like setting up a trial or setting up a research project that they've got to stop and start somewhere. And usually you stop and start somewhere according to where your funders say you can go, you know. So so the whole wokeism stuff is partly connected to the fact that our research and our science, our universities um, and, um, and, and even our schools have suppressed a lot of really good knowledge that would bring society together more and then as well as that we've got the fact that the newspapers won't carry controversial content we don't see panel discussions on our public tv we see that captured by a commercial capitalist mindset that means that you know you're not going to see a really big wide-ranging debate on should we tax ultra-processed food and should we increase access to meat protein and increase access to veggies because we've got that capture of that narrative so once you get more and tighter captures of narrative people are going to poke up because they're going to see injustice getting back to what wokeism is it's it's making people aware of, and I'm going to quote um, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social justice. Now, this is, this is life. This is human life. So wokeism actually comes from something that is really good and really important because we know, we know that people of colour have been marginalised and that they're like, less likely to own houses and they're less likely to be securely surrounded by family and food and that often the, the ways they always had eaten and, and, and gathered food have been cut off and then, you know, we've got this modern world where it's so much easier to walk into a supermarket and buy noodles and, you know, so their, their, their families can never be as healthy as they were because they've transitioned from omega-3s and fats and good proteins and good legumes to really narrow diets. So of course, they're going to be harmed. So, you know, so, and then we, and, and, and when I talk about racial and social justice, I bring in, you know, the fact that women have been disadvantaged forever. You know, we've been chattels and and our incomes have been like less and, you know, and, and because we have to step out of the workforce to have children, we don't have as many, you know, runs on the board as the blokes. So then when it comes to the, the fair, you know, and process of employment, women naturally don't have the same experience, inverted commas. So we get suppressed naturally because the way we choose things. So, we, you know, humans are just this messy, we're messy mm. bastards. Mm. We're really messy. And, and woke is really trying to bring attention to that in a good way. But well, yeah, yes and no, yes and no. I, yeah. See, see, for me, what you've described. That's 15 is, years ago. Yes, exactly. What you've described is the really attractive thing that was on the sales brochure 15 years ago. But when you actually sign up to the pyramid scheme, that's not what you're getting today. Because ultimately, as humans, we all want to do and help each other and our fellow, fellow humans. 
what I've seen, particularly with science, and I think you've really touched on it in terms of science, is that I've seen almost a weaponization of science. The relabeling of science, especially in the social sciences, so I'm talking things like gender studies, fat studies, black studies, placed a label on that and they have called those science. See, to me, those that's not science. That to me is sociology, that is um, psychology, that is, it's not for me hard science. That is interactions with other human beings and understanding the psychology of other human beings. Because I agree with you, we all want to make sure that we improve racial disparities. No one wants somebody to be affected from a dis, you know from a disparate point of view but how see now we're looking at things like it's gone too far do you then push back on somebody and say no you can't do that because you don't fit within this identity or a hierarchy and I in on this hierarchy you're assigned this level of power um, so because you've got this level of power you're an oppressor and this other group is oppressed so therefore you can't have a voice and your voice can't be heard and you can't have an opinion on things and that to me is quite dangerous. That wasn't on the brochure 15 years ago. No, it wasn't. But can I just draw attention, like I have to pick up on your science, you know, how, how you were talking about that. So we have the STEM sciences, science, technology and engineering maths. Yes. Then we have the humanitarian and social scientists sciences so what we're finding out really clearly and particularly in the medical industrial complex is that even in the medical industrial complex in in the hard sciences their reproducibility is a really big issue so when I went and did my research looking at the experience of scientists trying to get funding when scientists weren't basically wanting to you know find a patent and get Mm. you know do an innovation they wanted to understand the wicked problems upstream which we can talk about later that was science because i was looking for patterns but it was a humanitarian and social sciences i'm still looking for patterns they're looking for patterns in stem science science Mm. as well and basic you've got so once we start saying that science must be very 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 narrow thing that is where we see that's because over the last 30 years we've seen the reduction of funding for basic science. So basic is broad ranging, it's curiosity driven, and it, it, it often brings about many, many other discoveries on the way that you know can be commercialised, for example. Whereas what we've had right now for 30 years is you can do that applied science research if you can show me that you think there'll be a, like a molecular pathway that you can find a drug that you'll patent or something like that. So we need to understand the place of social science is actually really, really important. But you've drawn attention to another issue, which is the knowledge gap. So we're now in a stage in the universities where it's much more easy to get funding for research on gender, for example, than mm-hmm. it is to get research on nutrition and ultra processed food. Like that's what I, that's so that is my opinion because I'm seeing more and more sociologists looking, talking about gender studies. And that's really important. That's great. But we're actually seeing not as, you know, the, 
that the world of looking at, well, what is the mental health of our children? What is the learning capacity of our children? Why are our children ill in a way that wasn't there one or two generations before? That science is actively suppressed. So what we see are we we see forms of legitimized science, and that's what we see. And, we, and then we say, well, I don't want all these gender studies, but but we don't actually know how to talk about well, where is the other science? So if we're talking about the universities, I was looking up. There's an article in the Western Australian late last year. I went to do my MA in sociology, my Master of Arts in sociology, because I wanted to learn how to talk about this stuff. And sociology is great because you can. there's ignorance studies. You can actually, ignorance has a role. Non-knowledge has a role. When we don't know stuff, we can't talk about it. So when we don't understand about the obligations, for example, of elected members and officials to follow principles of public and constitutional law, that means they must always protect the public interest and they must understand that there is, you know, that it's there's no sort of length of string that's too long when you, you know, to, to, to consider the public interest and how do we protect, you know, protect health. What we see in the last 20 to 30 years is the economy is the deity that we bow down to and we don't even know how to articulate health without sounding like a greenie or a hippie or some some bloody weirdo yet our kids are getting sicker and sicker mm. you know so there's that's the context i often find myself in so this universe this west australian and i had to do a module to sort of show that i was understood basic stuff you know when i was up at auckland university of auckland but what's happening is that, you know these compulsory modules that we're seeing in universities the you know like which i found you cannot graduate until you've done them you know what we what they were talking about is you know there you've got to do compulsory apps on indigenous history or sexual consent cross-cultural communication you know why man it matters yet yeah, truth-telling mm-hmm. racism and reconciliation so these are all laudable right but we're not seeing modules on institutional and corporate power we're not seeing modules on nutrition and health, we're not seeing modules on why we should tax ultra-processed food and increase access for low-income and marginalised groups to vegetables and protein, meat protein. So what we're seeing is there is a there is a shaping of what we're only allowed to talk about. They're not even talking about all these things that are just so profoundly important for protecting good democracies, for example. They don't talk about lobbying, why we should be up in arms about lobbying or why, why we should be in up, in, up in arms about managerial cult, cultures in universities. And so, but, we, but we can talk about why gender matters. And, Matt, gender is a really hard thing to talk about. So, yes, but I'm sorry, but childhood nutrition and, and the <laughs> fact that most of these university students are chomping down on noodles and if they haven't grown up in a family cooking vegetables, they probably need that education as well. You know, and, and Indigenous history, yes, but we, we could be learning that at school as well. But when you're a fee-paying adult, mm. should you be learning that? You know? So what this says to me is that who pays the piper calls the tune. Who is paying the piper? This is what, what I'm really worried about is woke capitalism. Mm-hmm. So work has become a marketing tool. So I don't think 10, 15 years ago that was at all the intention of, of these groups. And so we're seeing work capitalism in corporate in, in universities, oh, which would be multinational corporations within media. Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. So we're seeing greenwashing, we're seeing pinkwashing, we're seeing brownwashing. And, and this is fused and it's, it's that whole you don't know where governments are stopping and the corporate sector are starting. It's really interesting that you bring that up. Um, Vivek Rabaswamy wrote a very good book called Woke Capital. I think it came out last year and he touches on a number of these things and I was talking earlier with Rachel Stewart because she's very has very strong opinions on trans activism and Dylan Mulvaney came up and she is someone who has transitioned had just completed her 365 days of transition and has is heavily lauded within the United States to celebrate her 365 days there has been a number of corporations who have sponsored them. One of them being Anheuser-Busch, which are the people that do Bud Light, and they've done a special commemorative can series for the, to celebrate that 365 days. Now, you're somebody who worked in marketing, and uh, you would have thought that the drinkers of Bud Light would be probably light years away from being excited by having a trans activist have a beer created around them and that woke capitalization it's interesting you know it started with I think that whole Colin Kaepernick take the knee with Nike do you remember that with no. after the Black Lives Matter so there was uh, I can't remember which NFL team he played for but he was an NFL player he was right at the end of his career and it was straight after the George Floyd and when they were doing the standing for the national anthem, he actually took a knee in disrespect to the national oh, yes, anthem. Sorry, I remember that. So that was 2020, I think. Yeah, 2020. Nike jumped on that straight away. And it's then, of course, not particularly strange that they've also jumped on Dylan Mulvaney now. So that was a, a massive campaign then was released after that. It actually reinvigorated Kaepernick's career and a lot of marketing i we actually went to a marketing and conference in auckland uh the following year and they were talking about the importance of marketing with a social just with social responsibility i think they termed it and it yeah, was run right. by yeah, yeah, ESA, yeah. ESA, yes exactly and it was intriguing it was really intriguing to sort of see that that was the direction that they were saying they were saying these are the people that they need to talk to now i spend a lot of time in the marketing space too and i'm thinking to myself well okay um i'd love to know where the end users are with this because in marketing it's all about the end user it's all of everything has to be driven from the end user from the market backwards what i'm seeing with as you, what you're saying with woke capital it's actually coming from the top down not from the bottom up what are your thoughts around that or do you think i've i've got it all upside down and back to yeah. front I guess we need to understand that 30, 40 years ago, and I'll say this probably, people have heard me say it again, but most of our local businesses and most of the businesses that were advertising from us were locally owned. They were regionally owned. Um, and now we have massive, um, we have shell companies, we have massive consolidation, we have, you know, big, big institutions like BlackRock, and we know that, they want consistent policies, that, you know, consistent approaches that reflect their principles and priorities. They will use information um, to benefit their bottom line and they are interested in amassing power. So, again, you know, like it, we can't ever say it's just one thing or the other because 
you know, there is massive work that always needs to be done to to draw attention to to you know the rights of children. You know, this is mm. something I you know as much as women's rights, as much as you know. I mean, I've got a couple of dear friends with trans kids, so I have watched how those families have dealt with the challenges with grace and equanimity and practicality and knowing that what they just want is their kid to survive and to get through and to be a strong, beautiful adult. And those those families have, as far as I'm concerned, succeeded really well because I love their kids. They're just gorgeous. I try to draw attention to what is not mm. there as much as is there. So... Yes, the top-down staff is happening because, first of all, they get attention, but secondly, it's a the corporation. So social justice, social and racial and social and environmental justice have often been picked up by corporations as uh, and they greenwash or they pinkwash or they brownwash to, to get credit points, so-called credit points. But mm. what we're now seeing is this inversion where we have to perform if we're to get the credit points, you know. So this is the social credit. So, you know, this is this shift where we have to behave. And so when so we... Do you, sorry, so do you think ESG points, so when we when I say ESG for those that aren't aware, environmental, social and... Well, I thought ESG is environment, social governments. It's government, it's, government, thank you. I always forget the G. Yeah, governance. Yeah, basically, we're responsible in everything we do, but the thing is, it's all voluntary. So mm. we see. So this is this is where we see these big corporations that are able to control so much narrative. So we look at the advertising spend of you know pharma, for example. So if we if pharma, you know, so for us talking about so so gender on mainstream America. American television will be big farmer will be happy about that compliments big farmers long-term goals because you know when you go through this process you do spend a lot of money or governments spend a lot of money on on hormone treatment and all that sort of stuff so this is a really hard thing because we know there are vested interests that are in this place as well so like I said it's not just one thing this is why it's really hard to talk about and so whereas Big Pharma won't let a discussion on, you know, m mainstream TV in America talk about the amount of deaths for, from iatrogenesis and how much, you know, which is harm from, from pharmaceutical drugs, unintended harm, or the problem of um, multiple drug reactions in the microbiome, how that is a, a source of toxicity, how that can lead to, and, and microbiome disruption from drugs can lead to an unhealthy person. So what we see is talking about gender is, is okay because it complements a big, powerful advertisers. And it, it's needed and it should happen, but the thing is they're not going to talk about the health risk of medicine. They're not going to talk about, for example, you know, endocrine disruptors or um, obesogens in our food and, and those problems because that all threaten the big corporations. So it's like things slip through that are okay for advertisers and okay for big business. And so then we hear more of that and we don't hear all the other stuff that we've been wanting to talk about all this time that is also inverted commas, commas controversial. So this is this constant polarisation. So mm. 
you know, we see the continued polarisation in media because they will not talk about these central, normal, what should be normal issues. But we Well, you've just highlighted media. again the censorship, isn't it? I mean, you've, yeah. again, who, who pays the piper calls the tune? Those who would like to play along in harmony or to start another tune are not allowed to even be part of the band. What you were saying in regards to food. Nutrition, is, I know, is something that I'm quite interested in. I'm a larger person. I've always been a larger person. I love to cook. This is why with fat studies, I find it really intriguing. They talk about all of these different excuses around size and, and justifications. I personally know that the reason I'm the size that I am is I put too much in the cake hole and I don't move enough. It's, it's a very, very simple formula. I don't, I don't try and blame it on anything else. I know exactly why I am the way that I am. I'm quite comfortable with that. But I also understand the quality of food. And because I cook, and I've made a point of teaching my sons to cook, my husband cooks, we try to grow our own food that we can. We look at the quality of the food that we consume. And it's quality in, quality out. That whole concept of the food pyramid and understanding food is something that you just can't talk about it. It's like it's this massive taboo subject and it amazes me in terms of the amount of censorship in terms of health yeah. that, and the messages that our teenagers are getting. I'm looking at the messages that my boys are bombarded with every single week and it is not healthy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on Voices for Freedom on their um, Odyssey pages, I've got an interview with Muna Lee where I talk about um, ultra-processed food and mental health and I talk about how there is not a single government website out there that actually truly addresses the relationship of mental health with nutrition and diet. And so what we're seeing is for a lot of groups, we're seeing a massive association of multiple health conditions including mental health that are and and these are primarily environmentally determined when we don't have a market square so you know mm. reality check radio is trying to build in a market square where we come together and we talk about stuff that matters so you know as you know if you're campaigning in New Zealand for as for a minor party in the election you can't just walk around the local big shopping mall. So that's privately owned. So I can't walk in as a minor party or with, as someone with a political, inverted commas, political, because what is political, issue and hand out brochures and talk about something I'm passionate about because that's a private space. So where is our market square? Mm. We don't, we actually do not have one. And, and so, and we certainly don't have one on TVNZ where we're able to talk about stuff that the government doesn't want us to talk about, which might involve issues of transparency and accountability and good governance. You know, we don't have that market square. We, we don't have the community coming together. So we're getting that polarising. We're getting atomization. Those groups are over there and mm -hmm. I don't like them. And the problem is really large, powerful institutions always, always benefit from people being polarised. That, again, comes back to instead of things being community-based going up, it is actually corporation-based coming down. So in terms of the culture, in terms of the current woke culture, which we sort of, as you said, it's a very difficult thing to define, but for me it always comes back to oppressor and oppressed, power relationships and people identifying into very specific groups, which, as Shu said, 
and have highlighted by doing that, by creating a narrowing of what those groups and those definitions are, it then silences or senses the ability to have conversations around other things that could be equally as important or more important that just get missed because they're not financially profitable yeah. for, for those who are wanting to get different messages out. So how then in the current environment do we do we change that? How many people do you think it would take to start steering the big ship in a different direction? Before I add the answer the people question, the other thing I the concept of what is woke is interesting for me too because I think today woke can mean you are ex- sort of what we would term extreme left. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're it's social and race, racial justice and you're so over being ignored and unheard and you know you've had intergenerational poverty and you know you can't get that job because you're you're not, you know, some skinny white chick with new shoes, you know. Like the, the, you've got to understand that what can be extreme left but it can also be far right, which is people that are railing against increasing let's say socialist tendencies or the the capturing of power so it might be someone who started researching three waters and they've understood that maybe this is taking power away from local communities and then they start understanding more and more things about global capitalism so they might be now considered woke as well that's what mm. i i believe so we've got this in so our domestic media that will not talk about anything complex and then we don't have the market square where we can meet up. You know, you just think about how how hard it is to go to, you know, the local halls in Toronga are freezing cold in winter and you still got to pay money and, you know, like people, how do we make local market squares easy and accessible for people? So particularly, say, mums with young children. This, mm. is, this is why we tend to often hear just male voices you know, at these events, because how do we make it, you know, and so a lot of people talking about racial and social justice are trying to say, how do we make it easier for women too? Mm. But somehow that stuff, all the nuances are kind of missing out. So, and so you then said, how do we, how many people does it take, right? So right now, I think New Zealand is, you know, what is really great is silence to not, like after five days on Rumble, there's 20,000 views on it. Mm. So people are hearing hearing many of us trying to talk about complex issues and come together because I think we've got to think about the context of what we are and the, the, the atomization, you know, little atoms everywhere. We're not connected. We're, we've been, you know, COVID has, has kind of separated us. The churches are still struggling for people to come back. You know, kids maybe are less likely to go and do team sports. All these cultural and community things have degraded. And then as church is something we do less of, we've got, you know, religion can be ideological and used by powerful people for bad, but then we have many, you know, ancient spiritual and and religious practices and cultural practices that promote community, promote consensus, give women a voice, give men a voice, and those principles are what we kind of have lost. And if you look back to, for example, the Russian Revolution and the Cultural Revolution in China, religion, spirituality, the principles that govern family and closeness were kind of gotten rid of, shall we say. Mm. So this is why we're in a very 
worrying process because when we get rid of those principles, so and I was talking about the fact that we don't have our officials and elected members. There's a there's a really important legal book called Administrative and Constitutional Law by Professor Philip Joseph. Every single person that's, that goes into government, whether they're an official or an elected member, should do a two-week course learning from this book, right, but no one's heard of it, you know, mm. and that's the principles of how they should conduct themselves, how they should protect the public interest, you know. So, so it's not just, religious, you know, older spiritual and cultural values. So when I, so tikanga Māori, you know, that that fulfils, you know, the mm. ancient practices all fulfill that role and make us healthy and happy and help us calm together when it's a hard time because we're humans. We're always going to be different. We're always going to have a different perspective. And I think when things are difficult, especially when things are difficult, I have seen after the COVID crisis an increasing relinquishing of people's sovereignty to the state. So not to themselves or if they hold faith, not to a greater power. But to the state and i just find that very dangerous i mean do you see have you seen more of that so yes uh, well most definitely i mean we we had this we had this new brand new product that were in, in you know can contain the instructions to produce a spike protein an inflammatory protein inside your body and it had never been approved before it was a brand new technology now so we had we had the this the manufacturing of propaganda of consent and a lot of work i've done has looked at that and it's and that's why we i I supported and helped with silence because we've had this place where people were so with the two things one side is is the fear you must take this or you'll be really, really sick. But on the other side was the, the hiding of science, the, the not letting uncomfortable science come, come out because it, those principles, the ethics or the, what I could say the grid lines for complex discourse was not permitted over this time. So in that information chasm or the, the gap of knowledge and in that state of fear so we know that in a state of fear people become compliant but they also didn't have anything to hang off they didn't know about um you know um the the multiplicity of treatments that were being dealt that developed in the u.s for example that that stepped in to look at all the different ways that you know the deal with inflammation and clotting Mm. and all those the repurposed drugs that were there already, but, but but the New Zealand public weren't privy to that because the media and the New Zealand government didn't talk about that and didn't permit it to be talked about. So we had the suppression of knowledge. So in that gap, people gave up their mm. sovereignty. But we also know it's in that gap, there is a another alarming thing that's happening at the same time is where, you know, is the concept of what is globalism. And we've, we've, we're seeing much more legislation coming through. You know, we've got the, it's a unicameral parliament. So there's no, not two chambers to, to debate and squabble for longer over, you know, new legislation. And then we've got the single party at the moment. They are forcing through legislation at the most alarming speed. And a lot of it, brings and furthers the treaty agenda which is again we will we will bow down to offshore major interests we will agree so so we're seeing this sort of the the public giving up their 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 freedom in terms of i will take this you know technology in order to to participate in 
you know, public life in order to sit in the back seat while my son has a has a driving lesson, you know, gets their, their driver's license, I will sit, I will get that injection because otherwise I can't be part of that process, you know. All those just insane things that they were forcing people to do. But we've got the global obligations coming in that are decoupling New Zealand from democracy. Once we have the word economic benefit in a lot of our legislation as well as protecting health, we kind of deflect to economic benefit because we don't have a language for protecting health. Once I put the word we harmonise with an offshore powerful international institution that actually is not itself democratically managed, we are deflecting to a very minor elite that, you know, we're losing democracy. Mm. And so the challenge for, for Australians, for Kiwis, and, and I, I do believe a lot of what we're seeing is a Western phenomenon. I don't think... Oh, is it very much a Western phenomenon? I could be incorrect and welcome anyone to come along and talk about that and, and talk to that a little bit more. But we're, So we're seeing all these degradation of principles and, and then we're seeing that, that legislation being massaged to privilege offshore agendas that are put in place by non-democratic institutions. So this is the, the kind of the tricky place we have mm. ourselves in. Sure, I'm talking to Jodie Brunning, sociologist here with on counterculture. And Jodie, feelings of isolation, which was something that came out during the COVID crisis, or being isolated or separated from the social body, I think that that's been weaponized, particularly during COVID. Yeah, because it's because we didn't have people we could talk to. Now they this has been understood in authoritarian totalitarian environments for quite some time that 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 separation and I think Hannah Arendt has spoken to this and so it's just that knowledge that we are profoundly social beings so body's physiology actually is altered our immune systems are weaker when we're isolated other problem that we have in our society is we have families are becoming you know less connected we're having smaller families so there's fewer kids and there's fewer uncles and aunties and there's fewer grandmothers or I'm going to work in you know down south because I've got to get the job and therefore mum's raising kids by herself or I'm going to Australia to work so we've got these families that were also struggling with basically dealing with the debt that is another it's another construct mm. because there's a lot of there's a lot of policy that could have been put in place to pre- prevent the level of debt we now have and so we have these these families fragmenting too and so when and, and so then you don't have the you know the kids come home for after school and they're going to game or they're going to watch TV and they're going to eat junk food cuz cuz mum or dad's not there and we need, you know, we need a society where it takes a village to raise a child. But we've kind mm. of all that stuff has been pushed aside because people are trying to sustain their level, the quality of life that they had maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And it's becoming harder and harder. So we've got the kids aren't learning those same mm. Of community because they're not inside family so that's another way all that stuff's been degraded and also that cycles all the way back around what we 
talked about at the beginning in terms of the elements of social justice, like what was on the pamphlet 15 years ago, that has still been pushed out. Those are the messages that our kids are getting because we're distracted working, trying to put food and bread on the table and doing all of those things. Social media, I think, plays a role in this in terms of how algorithms are constructed to send our children down a pathway. Yeah. It is all a great vicious cycle. The nice thing, though, is that I'm beginning to see positive change. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I mean, this is so much to do with, with, again, media that is coming through that is challenging that and courageous journalists. Um, and so the, the thing that I want to talk to you is this is this, this planning paper, like a, an engineering paper from 1973 that I talk about. Because what we're talking about is a wicked problem. And so that was envisaged as an engineering, you know, you've got towns are getting bigger and bigger. So you've got different issues that all come in. So, for example, you know, in in, in Toronga, they're getting lots of pipe problems because you've got all these wet wipes being flushed down. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of the wet wipes being flushed down are because we've got many, many more digestion problems because Families aren't eating real food, so you're getting massive problems with your intestinal health, and so you've you've got more diarrhea, basically. You've got more problems like that. So people are using the wet wipes. They're also very germ-phobic. And so you've got how do the the town planners deal with that when that's environmentally caused? So, you know, Rattel and Weber, dilemmas in a general theory of planning, they talked about the fact that, you know, all these things are so complex that, you know, they're complex systems and there's no technical solution. Um, and so they said, how do we, how do we understand a, a really complex or wicked problem? And so they, they suggested it's, it's always going to be imperfect. But how we solve a wicked problem is we go up and we understand as much of that as we can, you know, and that's where um, social sciences actually come into play. But as my master's thesis kind of drew attention to, the government's not funding that sort of science, Mm. that sort of research, because we're drawing attention to complex interdisciplinary, you know, problems and issues. And so we can't go up. We're sort of, and that's what we're seeing is a lot of citizen work. And this is, you know, sociology has always drawn attention to um, to citizen actions to make things change because that is the only way things will ever change because once, once powerful institutions become locked in, they really like the status quo. Mm. Um, so a wicked problem, as they said here, is not because the properties are ethically deplorable, it's, it's sort of like they're tricky problems, they're vicious problems that you sort of can't get rid of. Um, and so you can't treat it as if it's a simple, tame kind of problem, if you know what I mean. So what they said, and I love this, they said the information needed to understand the wicked problem depends on one's idea for solving it. In order to describe a wicked problem in sufficient detail, one has to develop an exhaustive inventory of all conceivable solutions ahead of time. And isn't that all conceivable solutions? Yes. Which then says to me one's person's solution is another person's misinformation. Exactly, exactly. And when you look at 
the cabinet documents, you know, instructions for the cabinet manual. When you look at principles of constitutional law, our administrators, our officials, our elected members are meant to look at controversial information. This, so we have governance breakdown because they're bringing in technical statute law that puts these black and white rules in place that don't have broader principles that let that let officials look more broad, broadly in areas that maybe politicians that are in for a certain period or ministers with conflicts of interest because maybe they're a politician as well, in, you know, can criticise. So we're seeing governance back breakdown because these issues, the conceivable issues, the, you know, the mandatory considerations, the considerations that are really broad aren't being looked into. And, and so what they say, and I love, it's such a simple word, but they say once you once you pull all this messy stuff together and you only go up as far as you can, it's a matter of judgment which of the solutions to the wicked problems should be pursued and implemented. But of course, we had conflicts of interest in the relationships of really big businesses in our governments now. We have these laws, these statutes that are technical, that are privileging offshore institutions. We have political funding. And we don't know where that stops and starts. We don't have elected members having to declare their incomes before they go in. So we don't know how they Then we have the revolving door where regulators are past people that worked in industry and then the industry go into the regulated, you know. So we've got all these human problems because it's we're human and this is human life, you know, but we've seen suppression of people being able to ask, ask about- questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is a lot more for us to unpick. And I think we're going to pick this conversation up again, because I think there's going to be lots of stuff that we can talk about ongoing. Jodie, this has been incredible. Thank you very, very much and with your time and being very generous with your time. We will talk again soon. There is so much more that we can say. So thank you so much. And again, people, if they want more information, have a look, as you said, uh, at the Physician and Scientists for Global Responsibility, psgr.org.nz is a good place to have a look at some of the environmental work that you talked about. Thank you. And um, I personally write on Substack um, on J.R. Brunning, J-R-B-R-U-N-I-N-G, substack.com and that's where you'll you'll find me um, traversing a lot of the other issues a lot of a lot of broad issues and and just trying to trying to help people talk about it and being open to people criticizing me too because I know no one is the font you know so it's like it's all of us trying to bring as much information as as humbly and openly as we can mm. into this place pull it together in a wonderful wicked mess as you and said. be imperfect you know because yeah. we are just humans. Wonderful. You take care and we will talk again soon. Don't go away. There's still more to come here on Counterculture with Marie on Reality Check Radio. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.